the Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. Season four, episode seven. Uh, it was my choice. I decided to do something a little bit different. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. So there's not a ton of stuff coming out right now on streaming that's brand new. Uh, the Fear Street trilogy on Netflix piqued my interest the first time I saw the trailer drop. I had no idea this was coming out. I had no idea what it was. Uh, I saw the trailer on Netflix, and as much as I can be negative towards them, they have a really good marketing department sometimes. And the trailer that they dropped was fantastic, and it really, as someone who loves 90s slasher films and 90s horror films, I I was sold by the trailer to Fear Street 1994. Um, Did you have the same reaction to this? Oh, totally. Did you really? Okay, interesting. Yeah, I thought you would be excited about it. It was was exactly uh, kind of what I think we needed this summer, um, was some kind of like just just a really kind of warm and fuzzy jolt of a bloody adrenaline and i saw the trailer same thing as you um i read a couple fear street novels as a teenager but i was yeah. definitely it was like in the we kind of talked about this over text where it's like you kind of feel like uh you're a little too old i think i had mostly moved on to stephen king at that point yeah. um but I was also obsessed with Goosebumps when I was like in fourth, fifth grade. So uh, the particular like kind of personal jab, because the Fear Street books, Goosebumps, both written by R.L. Stein, um, it for me was that uh, I've been reading, rereading, I guess, the Goosebumps books with my nine-year-old oh, son. And uh, so it's just been kind of crazy. And I've seen both of those terrible Goosebumps movies way too many times i uh, haven't seen either of them i kind of <laughs> avoided both because they both are like i mean goosebumps the difference between goosebumps was a little bit more for children right right fear street had like murder and stuff like that so um a little bit more for the adults i the, the goosebumps movies you didn't like no they're they're pieces of trash i mean they're very enjoyable for kids and yeah. it's like i mean i wish there were more movies like that that like you know, had the vibe of Are You Afraid of the Dark and stuff like that, where it's like creepy. So, like, creepy kids like my children have something to gravitate towards and enjoy, but not actually like get scared, you know? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Did you, did you see scary stories to tell in the dark? Oh, right. I still haven't seen that yet. Does that, you feel like that, that's kid friendly? Uh, no. I, like, <laughs> it, the, the problem with horror films, uh, mm-hmm. no matter what age they're um, targeted at, there's always you never know because every person experiences things so subjectively. It's like sure. I don't know if a kid, eleven year old, is gonna like freak out or nine year old is gonna freak out about something or not. Um, I mean, I was terrified by never ending story when I was a child, so right. that's not really a horror film, right? I mean, it is existentially terrifying. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, yeah, that's a fun one to watch. So it's been a thing, right? Goosebumps, yep. scary stories tell in the dark. Then we get this series. It's three films. Uh, so Fear Street, 1994, 1978, and then 1666. Uh, so three separate feature-length films. They're all about at least an hour and a half to two hours in that range. Uh, released uh, essentially a week apart. Uh, and so starting on July 2nd, and then the last one was just released on uh, July 16th, this last Friday. Um, a really interesting sort of i guess you call it an experiment um and the entire sort of idea for this trilogy uh kind of came came about from trying to do something different uh yeah. and so but what what i found very fascinating you know diving into this this movie series is uh it being on netflix i just assumed that it was a netflix thing that netflix had said hey we need to change how we release movies it's kind of experimentation releasing and distribution Let's try this, you know, horror trilogy thing and release them, um, you know, uh, uh, over three weeks. But that's not the case at all. Uh, so, like, the inception of this film and this film series trilogy was bef- way before Netflix even got involved. It was actually started at 21st Century Fox. Mm-hmm. And they had worked with uh, Peter Chernin, who's part of, like, the the Chernin Entertainment Group. Uh, who used to, he, this guy used to run Fox. Uh and uh, they partnered with them. So this was a big studio thing. 
that they were going to release these three films. I think they originally, uh, they didn't know, actually. They just said, hey, we want to release these in a short time frame. The original inception was to release them uh, over three months. Uh, But when 21st Century Fox got bought out by Disney, things got weird. Uh, I think Chiron was sort of wanted to get the rights back. And eventually Netflix was like, we really want to do this. And they came in, swept in and kind of took it over. And I think to the huge benefit of the trilogy, because the one thing that sticks out to me is that like, if they tried to do this in the box office, the movie theaters right now, it would have failed. Do you think that that's true or no? With the pandemic? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right now, I mean, they can't even get people to go to black widow. I mean, right. like you can't get people to go to black widow. It's like, you're not going to send them to like a, I mean, it, it's essentially kind of zoomer focused. Right. Is that right? And so uh, they don't go to movies, do they? They like they're on TikTok. No, no. I mean, when I bring my students to the the movie theater at the end of a uh, film studies semester, the, it's it's the first time in a cinema for like half of them at least. Really? Yeah. That is. Oh man, that's crazy. But I it doesn't know. surprise me that much. Me like look at the numbers because it's like younger people these days just do not flock to the theaters at all, like we did. Like in the mm-hmm. '90s, like that's where I would go to hang out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? Totally. Spend all day like, there. Yeah, you have nothing to do. You go to like Capital Cinemas or West Town or West Point, whatever, uh, and just hang out for the day and watch like a couple of movies. Um, in any event, uh, maybe you should tell us what this is about. What is this all? What is Fear Street oh all about? Give us the overview what of this the convoluted. Hell is plot. this thing about? So, as Dan said, three different movies, three different years, uh, and. The first one starts in the 90s, and it goes backwards. So, 94, after a series of brutal slayings, a teen and her friends take on an evil force that's plagued their notorious town for centuries. So, there's two towns, Shadyside, where our protagonists live. There's been these brutal murders that have been happening, basically massacres every generation, essentially, um, going back hundreds of years. Whereas the neighboring city, uh, Sunnyvale, has uh, somehow managed to prosper and uh, have in you know great wealth and no, little to no homicide <laughs> to speak of. <laughs> um, then we and uh, so. You know, there's some shit going down. There's a new massacre happening, and the kids in the 1994 film are trying to figure, get to the bottom of it. Then uh, they find a survivor at the end. You know, spoiler: you should go watch these movies. They're even <laughs> no matter what you think their artistic merit is, they're fun. Um, it, it's worth watching, so, and then come back and listen to us de- do a deep dive. Then 78, they go uh, back in time because they have in 94 uh, met a survivor of the 1978 massacre, which happened at a summer camp in the same town, uh, featuring pe- uh, kids from both um, Sunnyvale and Shadyside. And then in that movie, they find an artifact that uh, makes them kind of when they touch it, it has this magical supernatural power that transports them to 1666 for the third and final movie and i think one thing to note and i feel like i i wished i would have known ahead of time is that basically the third film only about half of it takes place in 1666 yeah that was i think like a clever move but almost too clever because like it makes you i was watching that and all of a sudden you get an hour in i was like because one of my biggest fears about this trilogy is like the 1660 one is not going to be fun. Right? right. Because it's like, it, you know, that's like a very different universe than 78, which is a, basically an homage to um, uh, Friday, Friday the 13th. The 13th yeah. Right. And then the 94 one is clearly a very strong homage to uh, Scream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I know what you did last summer, kind of stuff, the 90s stuff. But the, la- the last one, what are they going to do? The Witch. Uh, right. you know the crucible well i mean sure. lee yaniak the director i i found very interesting uh i don't know if you saw this in the notes dan but uh her inspiration for the 1666 segment yeah terrence malick's the new world oh i did see that <laughs> it's incredible uh, she, uh, yeah so let's talk about her a bit uh sure sure, sure. she is fascinating i am fascinated by this person uh she is somebody who um, got kind of her, she, her story is this essentially. She, um, was getting, uh, got her undergrad at NYU, did a lot of theater stuff. She actually directed a lot of plays there, got into sort of acting there as well, really wanted to be a writer. Uh, but instead of sort of going out to Hollywood and doing that first, she actually went to grad school at the university of Chicago 
Uh, she was getting her master's. She was actually in her PhD in Jewish studies. She's not Jewish. Uh, so it was a really weird sort of thing. She like brought this up in an interview. Was like, yeah, I'm not Jewish. But I'm doing this. Like I was getting my PhD in Jewish studies, essentially like comparative religion. Uh, she got her master's and said, hey, this isn't for me. Then she moved out to Los Angeles and started to sort of try and write. Uh, and she got her big break uh, working as a bartender at the Red Lion in Los Angeles, uh, which is where the waitresses dress up like they're German uh, German women, I guess, and like Lederhosen <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and she said somebody basically, I think, I think she was, I don't know how someone came out to her or something and said, hey, you should come work for me, blah, blah, blah. I ended up being a big producer. And she became his assistant. Uh, and that is how she got her start, essentially. Um, and then she started to write. Uh, and her big sort of big step into like actual directing was The Honeymoon in 2014, which I have not seen. Um, have you seen The Honeymoon? No, no, but I definitely want to see it because it stars Rose Leslie from Game of Thrones, who I think was one of the better actors on that series. Uh, she played Egret. Yeah, and I saw the trailer. I haven't seen it either. This trailer looks pretty good. Um, but essentially, you know, the honeymoon does pretty well, and that leads to her getting some TV gigs. Uh, and that's where she kind of gets on this Fear Street path. She did a few episodes of the Scream series on MTV, uh, and then I believe on uh, Outcast. I don't know what Outcast was on, like Cinemax or something. Yes, I, I I've know. never heard of it, but yeah, uh, once again, sounds yeah. interesting. She's been pretty much under the radar, Super, even though. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, she got so she got scooped up by Peter Chernin, right? Uh, yeah. co-founder and partner at uh, the Turning Group, which does not probably ring a bell for most people, but is clearly a, like a pretty kind of a quiet powerhouse um, in the industry has uh, produced everything from uh, New Girl on Fox to the new Planet of the Apes trilogy, Hidden Figures, Greatest Showman, Ford v. Ferrari, and also uh, Peter Turner himself um, back when he oversaw Fox-filmed entertainment um, from 96 to 09, uh, ended up being kind of one of the main money men uh, to make James Cameron uh, create Titanic and Avatar. So, like, <laughs> if you're gonna have somebody, you know, figure out a way to make horror do something new and huge, um, like a Fear Street trilogy, um, especially during a pandemic, I feel like this is probably your guy, and this is why you got it made, and w why he uh, saw the benefit of uh, scooping up somebody um, kind of younger and on the upswing, but that hadn't really. Um, made anything huge yet, but ha clearly had tons of raw talent uh like lee yaniak yeah exactly it's it, it was interesting because when i first came across her imdb um i, I had no idea who she was and i went to go probably after the second movie i was like well who's making these is it the yeah. same director and you go back and look at imdb and like we stated everything she did like a few TV shows, one pretty indie film that she shot up at her family's cabin in Canada. Uh, these, there's a micro budget probably. Uh, so there's no real indication here. Um, the only thing that popped up was that she was attached to the craft remake mm -hmm. um, a couple of years back, but that fell through with her. So this is like, you go from kind of a micro budget film to doing three back to back films for 20th century Fox it's pretty crazy. Like it's yeah. a huge leap. Um, and, um, but it, I'll, I'll be honest. We, we kind of get ahead of ourselves, but she really like at her first at bat at like a major kind of studio film. I think she does pretty phenomenal. Like mm -hmm. trying to tie all this stuff together. It's not easy to do. And it's, you know, one of the things that sticks out to me about these movies is that this is, uh, despite the fact that they are, I would say a hard R, <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of violence, a lot of swearing, some significant gore. Uh, it's also walks this fine line of being, like you said, very fun and actually very enjoyable. Uh, they're uh, pleasurable films pretty much across the board. Uh, so it was like, it, it's a little bit mind blowing to me that somebody, um, you know, with, with, to be honest, does not have a ton of experience at this level directing films takes on three films that are interconnected part of a new releasing strategy which i don't think we've ever seen really before can you think of anything else that 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 harkens back to like three separate feature films in a 
uh, over three weeks outside of say like the art world. Like no, I mean yeah, you've got like yeah, especially foreign movies. I feel like it's almost kind of uh, way more common in like Russian cinema. Yeah. Uh, not to get too esoteric, but like uh, the you know red red, white, and blue movies um, is maybe the only other instance I can think of. And even those were still like, I think several months apart, maybe w- three movies within two years. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously like Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, it was like bump, bump, boom in a row, but still once a year, even though they were all shot um, very close together. Um, but this is, this is, yeah, it's crazy. And the, it, what makes it crazier, I think, is that, you know, it was originally supposed to be a theatrical release and they were considering monthly. And I actually, you know, if the pandemic hadn't happened, I was kind of thinking how that could be pretty cool to have like June in a traditional, like before time scenario. June is dominated by 94 and then everybody's ready to go see 78 in July and then everybody's ready to go see 66 in august like that that could have been really awesome you know barring that though this release strategy like you said earlier especially considering its target audience um which is probably like horror nerds like us as well as like teenagers teenagers yeah (laughs) yeah Um, 40 year old white dudes with glasses (laughs) and 17 year old girls are in the same boat but i mean you you can't get much better than that i i do think that like the the content um glut is definitely kind of unfairly drowning these movies even though i think all three of them are still now you know a week after 66 came out um in the top 10 uh for netflix um but still it's like it it, it's as good of a scenario as you can imagine considering the circumstances of being you know maybe out of a pandemic i don't know about those delta numbers but yeah (laughs) yeah, delta's not looking great right now i don't know i I do think it would have struggled even outside of the pandemic really you know if we think like 2019 i just don't do these things sell anymore you know like there's a horror movies are always i think a decent bet because they have such low budgets that's all they constantly get made right um But specifically a trilogy like this, it, it I don't know. It almost it it plays perfectly to Netflix. Yeah. Because and I like I have to bring it up. Her husband is yes. uh what's his name? Duffer, right? The Duffer Ross brothers. Duffer, yeah. Ross the Duffer. one half of the creators of Stranger Things. Stranger but Things. It, it makes it so crazy though that like you get a total Stranger Things vibe, especially from the ninety-four one, yeah. a little bit from the seventy-eight one, especially because it co-stars um one of the Stranger Things actors, uh Sadie Sink. Yes. Um, the red-haired girl who plays Ziggy, um, as in '78, um, but but yeah, I mean, it, it is ostensibly a complete coincidence, right? That totally coincidence, yeah. Like it's because this this would have been uh, development probably like right after that premiere, how it got yeah, started, yeah. Um, but it is it is kind of interesting that parallel, and then the, the, the sort of talking about um. I think one of the reasons it wouldn't have done super well in the theaters is that it has a kind of stranger vibes and the fact that like it plays well on streaming TV. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have a cinematic, it does have cinematic aspects to it, but it feels really kind of almost relaxed in a way. Yeah. Uh, And maybe a little bit breezy where it plays better in that sort of thing. And that kind of brings me to one of the quotes about, you know, as they were developing this, um, you know, a couple of things like they, um, they weren't really sure how to do this. You know, they weren't really sure how to write a plot or narrative. That's really going to work over this really three separate movies over this short time span. And they ask themselves, this is a quote from one of the interviews with Yaniak. Um, uh, how do we make it organic to the story and have that motivate the reasons for the structure? So that was the primary challenge for me and my fellow writers uh, when we first started. Where we ended up feeling like we cracked it uh, was that we were doing something a little new that was this hybrid between movies and traditional television content. And that's really, I think, what it is. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't feel like, I know what you did last summer, like a, like a feature film that way. Uh, it doesn't feel like a Scream 3 or a Scream 4. Uh, and I can't really tell you what that difference is. Um, but there's just something about it that just has a different sort of vibe. Um, and it's 
what makes it work, I think, is the fact that it has that slight limited miniseries television-ish vibe, but then it's sort of stacked three. And for some reason, they work all together and it makes them all better at once. Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I'll be I'll be straight. I think you kind of knew this based off my <laughs> texting and trolling. Um, is that I I didn't really dig 94. I was really, yeah. I was like, this is, this feels like so much. Like it just felt so scattershot and kind of bloated. And uh, I mean, I, I liked aspects of it. There were scenes that I thought were really, really well choreographed um, on a horror level. And there were character moments that were really interesting on a story level, but it just felt like I kind of felt very much like, uh, old man yells at cloud where it's like that's not <laughs> that's not what it was like growing up <laughs> i'm like that wait, wait, wait. <laughs> did you really feel that way i did and i think that i mean because oh, it was about us essentially right right, right like, like yeah we were we, we were a le- we were like the jo- josh the you know exactly. the younger we brother's age. age yeah 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 <laughs> but um but i i will say that like you what you said is spot on like as soon as i watched started watching 78 and especially as soon as i started watching 66 i was starting to like really feel everything pull together cohesively and clearly and and it 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 is it's it's i would almost feel like i i think there's it would be dumb if we were doing a podcast episode about each of these movies they're all one thing yeah i I don't think it really works especially because um this is a little loose thread from earlier since the 66 movie, the third one, only half of it takes place during the settler colonial times. The other half comes back to 94. And I will say that even though like I had, I was like really rubbed the, the wrong way the first time around with those characters and that story and just like the kind of neon garishness of it. Um, but when, when those characters came rushing back and I was like, okay, I'm going to spend another like 45 minutes with these people. Um, the fact that like them combined with Jillian Jacobs playing the older version of Ziggy, and then also seeing like all the, the one thing that probably should be noted that I think really made the movie work is that they had both character uh, actors from seventy eight and ninety four playing the sixty six yeah. characters, yeah. and so the way that congeals is really interesting too. So that by the time they're back as their ninety four selves, I'm just like like totally in on it and it was really incredible to like kind of see how my own reaction changed so uh exponentially over the course of watching it because you're right all the piece i mean this is it has the pieces of tv because where it's like you know you plan out a season and you really uh you know a lot of people referred to how the third movie um uh, stuck the landing that's usually a phrase reserved for like the season finale of a tv show yes exactly right? yeah um, but, but, uh, in while I do think that argument has some merit, um, it, it feels kind of, uh, moot because at the end of the day, like, yeah, like I, they are, they're all one thing. And it felt like I was watching a season of a show, um, from the beginning to the end. But yeah. at the same time, like, it, it's very clear, especially like reading from Yaniak's point of view, like the 94 one is Scream, 78 one's Friday the 13th. Like, I don't know. It's a really cool, um, new way to think about how much we can blur the lines in this weird streaming place where people are releasing both movies and TV shows nonstop. Yeah. I mean, it really is, you know, think about why we do this podcast, right? Um, you know, I think we do it because it, we're fascinated by how, how films come, come into being essentially. Mm-hmm. And like, I think one of the, one of the things I've learned from this podcast is like making a movie is incredibly difficult. Yeah, and, and making a good movie uh, is just brutally hard to do, mm-hmm. and it takes so many different elements that to come together. And a lot of it's hard work. Some of a little bit's luck. Uh, some of it's talent. There's a lot of things that go into it, but it is really um, this sort of group effort where everybody has to be going towards the same thing, which is very hard to do to make one good movie. Um, she made three good movies essentially. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, how, how did that happen? Like, especially because she doesn't really have a huge background. Uh, she, okay. She's been working at this for a long time. I don't want to sort of diminish yeah. that, but she's not been making films for a long time. But she right? did do TV, 
right? But not a lot of TV. Not a lot. Yeah. But- and I was thinking about this today, actually. And I was like, okay, like maybe like two episodes of Scream she did. That's essentially a movie, right? Mm-hmm. Because those are like, uh, you know, maybe like 40 minutes long or something like that. Um, But I can't really think of another example. Obviously, this is such kind of like a rare thing um, of somebody kind of coming out of the blue like this and and doing all this. And when you when you listen to her and her interviews on this, um, this is not like she is so clearly somebody who is obsessed with film uh, and just wanted to do something here that I think she would she would enjoy. But enjoy it, it. What's interesting about this is that it works on two levels. It works on the fun, enjoyable level, but then it also really works for horror nerds, uh, which she's obviously one of. Uh, and she talks about, you know, Scream. She talks about Friday the 13th. Um, but there's a quote that stands out to me, like when she was thinking about like what she wanted to do with this and what her goal was in making Fear Street and the, and the trilogy. And she goes, uh, I wanted it to be scary. I wanted it to be bloody, like all those things that exist in the Fear Street universe. But more than anything else, I wanted them to feel fun. I wanted it to be a pleasurable experience watching the movie. So even when it was awful, I still wanted there to be joy, hopefully in the pleasure of what was happening to these characters, what they were going through, and how they were going through it, and all of those things. So on the one hand, you have this very, and this, you know what this reminds me of, is our conversation about Promising Young Woman, mm. uh, where... Um, uh, Emerald Farrell, she, you know, made a very conscious effort to make a palatable film where if you're sitting down to watch it, you're going to enjoy it. And I think you're thinking back to 1994, that neon garish you're talking about, like, that's all part of that. Right. It's part of this way to um, engage you as a viewer and kind of excite you and visually titillate you in a way. But then there's this whole other layer going on. And I think, you know, if you're a Zoomer who hasn't seen Scream or hasn't seen all of the Friday 13th movies like I have yeah. like five times, <laughs> right, you're you don't necessarily need the the subtext, yeah. but the core of it works really well. But I think the subtext is super strong. Um, I don't know. Would you how would you do you see those two strands going on here? Yeah, totally. And, you know, it was I, was something that was unfortunately spoiled for me uh, on Twitter. Uh, I had kind of in advance known about uh i don't know if i'd call it a twist but the reveal that occurs in the third film um that really kind of bring makes the subtext text uh in terms of uh what it has to do what the stories have to do with uh oppression and patriarchy and so on um and i i mean but it didn't it i don't think it changed the impact for me um the fact that i was spoiled for it um one thing that really also uh kind of calcified my admiration for the trilogy was that um, you had this kind of, uh, uh, well, okay. So the fear street books, right. They, they are fun. They are breezy. They're trashy though. Right. Like RL Stein, he's, he's never one that's been looking or trying to do subtext, (laughs) which, you know, fair, Fair enough. He's just trying to entertain kids. And the fact that he's getting kids to read and enjoy stories um, is good enough. Um, but then the fact that there weren't like specific titles from the Fear Street series that Yanayak is uh, adapting with her co-writers, she's just taking that world and the essentially two families, the good family um, and the uh, fear family, and those two cities Sunnyvale and Shady Side, and that's basically they. Other than that, it was blank canvas for them. They, you know, took bits and pieces from some of the Fear Street novels in terms of like character beats or, uh, uh, you know, action like set pieces for murders. Um, but other than that, it was like just a writer's room, like essentially a writer's room for a season of a TV show where they have to yeah. break the stories. And the fact that then they were able to do that in that intricate, but as you said, still like easy to digest kind of way. Um, I think it's a really cool stepping stone. Almost the fact that, yeah, it's subtext at least for the first one and a half movies, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's this moment um, 
and I, I, I have to really sit on it still. I literally start, finished watching 66 um, right before we started recording tonight. Um, but I actually think 1978 is my favorite of the three. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is, well, there's a, there's a number of reasons, but one of the primary reasons is this stepping stone thing that I'm talking about, where it's like, there seemed to be a moment between um, Sadie Sink's character, Ziggy, and uh, Nick Good, the guy that grows up to be sheriff of Sunnyvale, where they talk about um, the um, their their differences between you know living in the two towns, and uh, you know she um, reveals herself to be like that weird girl from across you know wrong side of the tracks that reads Stephen King and stuff, and then he's like, well, but you don't know me. And so the fact that like like he's like saying like I'm not a preppy guy I'm not a jock that you know just cares about being you know captain of the football team or whatever like you know he he pulls out like a Salem's Lot reference and stuff but then the fact that then that ties in to that reveal in 1960 in 1666 um, to kind of bring the subtext to the text level and it becomes very clearly about patriarchy and domination and oppression and marginalization of um uh various communities then it's like you have those moments of like firing back like it made it was cool because it made me think about those moments that were kind of meta but also very powerful uh to watch as a kid um, when we saw scream for the first time but also felt like those moments where like you know after watching x number of episodes of the wire and something ties into something that happened several episodes before uh and brings the subtext to the level of text and uh, makes it that much more meaningful. So that was a long diatribe, but I think that's, I think that's the key here is like, this is, it's cool because it doesn't just entertain in a successful way to be uh, attractive to young audiences, but also like Yannick knows the value of, uh, of putting that deeper message in there, which kind of goes back to our conversation from last episode about an American world in London, where it's just like John Landis just doing whatever he wants. <laughs> which is fun and enjoyable. And yeah. Um, but isn't, is like, he wasn't, I don't think he was really trying to say anything on purpose. Right? No. And that's like, when I was going back to like the horror nerd and like why she's a fascinating director here is that like, that's what sticks out to me the most it's not just like she has a good, uh, great understanding of horror filmmaking and filmmaking in general. It's that she also has like this, the, that sort of meta understanding of how horror films are actually social mm-hmm. commentary. And mm-hmm. she like, she knows that going into like every scene and she seems to sort of like, uh, there's just something about someone who understands genre so well where they can kind of tiptoe and kind of play with you as the viewer. And if you kind of know what she's doing, it's kind of a little cat and mouse game with like references and what she's trying to get at. And, um, but it was so clearly obvious to me that like these were message films. Right. And she's very, she's very adamant about this in the interviews. Probably a couple of good quotes like uh, that she talks about. Um, You're not, you're not surviving past the first act. If you're black or you're queer or if you're Asian in traditional horror movies. And to me, uh, it was this opportunity to tell the story of shady side that had been the story of the have and have nots. Uh, which is very clear like you know obviously the the text is right in your face or the subtext is right in your face um there's another great one kind of directly what i'm talking about um she says one of the reasons i love horror movies is because of of exactly what you're talking about which is that you can make these really fun violent crazy things but also make them about something so that was our thing it was about uh, systemic oppression it was about systemic rot it was about what it means to be told by society that you're the other and you're the outsider Mm-hmm. That is not casual filmmaking. No. Like, that's not somebody... That's not J.J. Abrams. <laughs> like, you know what I'm talking about? Like, there's a distinct difference between filmmakers who um, are in it for... Maybe you call it, like, the cinematic pleasure. Uh, like, when you see Force Awakens, hey, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, isn't it? It's a great time. And there's filmmakers who are in it for something else. You know, and she talks about the New World and Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick's one of those guys. Like, Tree of Life, you see that. It's not, you know, it's a, a different world. Uh, what I think is so great about this trilogy, she kind of does both. Or she yeah. tries to do both. Does it always work? Hell no. 
But it's like it, it works enough, often enough in the trilogy. We're like, wow, this is a really cool thing that's happening that she did. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where um, it kind of came out of the blue. And it's kind of this. Um, I, I am a little bit worried that that part of this, this, these films are going to get like swept under the rug a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, look, there's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of people on Twitter and social media, blah, blah, blah. But because of the content cycle that we're in, which sort of mimics the 24 hour news cycle. Yeah. It's like, are these films going to stick around? Number one, number two, is that subtext, which is there going to cut through into an actual discourse? Uh, or is it just going to be people tweeting back and forth to each other in some sort of like, uh, so, you know, self-reflective loop. Like, yeah, is this, it, are, are these conversations going to go anywhere? Because, you know, the, the, I mean, not to like break the whole story, but like the entire thing revolves around essentially, um, uh, you know, love between two women. And like, that's mm-hmm. not something we've seen in horror before. I mean, horror tends to be very patriarchal and maybe ironically patriarchal, but you don't really see these types of relationships. And to be honest, these people uh, in front of the screen. And so do you think that, her intentions here of having a message of having um social commentary at the core and heart of these films do you think that's going to go anywhere or do you think it's going to get lost in sort of this netflix content machine you know and i i I had a similar thought when i found out that she was married to ross duffer because stranger things totally fits into that pleasure machine you know style of of not movie making, TV making, right? Storytelling, and uh, it, I think that it can be easily get it can easily get mistaken. And I think one thing that is probably unfortunate, but is you know the uh, it's the double edged sword of making a trilogy is that you get to make something big and cool, and you follow the characters throughout the three films. But I mean, I'd be curious to know the numbers. I'd imagine that ninety four is one that a bunch of people there's going to be a bunch of people that watch that and not the other two. Yes. Right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. And so you're going to miss all of that. But at the very least, you'll get, you know, the, um, the lesbian romance, uh, front and center, which, like you said, is huge, which is sad thinking that it's 2021 and that's maybe the first time that's happened in a horror movie, uh, a wide release horror movie, anyways. Um, but the other thing that came to mind is like, uh, even those moments where I was like, I don't know about this trilogy, um, I was still appreciating the fact that it was a big swing, right? Like you have to admire if if nothing else uh, that she's taken huge chances and every, her whole team is too. Um, And and I'd say the cast too. I mean, we haven't really talked about the cast much. And um, I had, (laughs) once again, had some issues with how obnoxious they were selling some of these (laughs) characters and lines um, in the first film, but like, especially seeing them go into, into, you know, colonial settler mode in the 66 version where it's like, are we like doing like a kitty version of Arthur Miller? And I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> like these kids can act. <laughs> like it's pretty, it's pretty impressive on both like a technical level. Um, even if, like you said, there are moments that don't, uh, don't land at the end of the day, the whole thing overall did. And that's, way harder of a thing to do in movie making um oh, than so hard. Yeah. the opposite like there's there's been some funny comments on twitter about like you know w- how how interesting that a trilogy where it's all helmed by the same visionary and uh not instead of two competing visions <laughs> um uh, clearly making reference to like the latest star wars trilogy right uh-huh. oh yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> where it's like i mean that goes back to exactly your theory about like pleasure machine versus message machine like R- ryan johnson sandwiched in between jj abrams like you can't <laughs> you can't have a kind of worse way for it to go um Who's but i think that? oh go ahead yeah keep going no i was say i was th- to to kind of go back to what you were saying earlier about um uh where where is this gonna go in the future of horror movies or in the future of netflix movies i don't know man because i was like looking back at netflix original horror movies and there's a lot of them which i kind of think i knew but i did not realize 
I, I've seen so few of them, yeah. but I did not realize. Um, fun fact. Uh, tw- there are 12 Netflix original horror movies um, from the past four years that are certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. There's and four? 12. Oh, gotcha. Um, and in the past four years. So, Interesting. So, like, and I haven't seen any of these movies. I've heard about some of them. But, like, just looking at the, you know, the log lines, like, they all seem like they're message horror. And they just get buried because they're they're not the big shiny thing and that's been i mean honestly that's been a problem with netflix for at least five six years uh and they just got into original content less than a decade ago less than yeah like 2013 i believe was the start house of cards where they really no nation yeah yeah beast no nation yeah yeah when what year was that though that was later wasn't it no i think that was 2013 also yeah those those were the two house of cards of tv and beast of no nations movies which also like think about the the distinction between those two (laughs) artistic (laughs) merit um it, it was a complaint like almost immediately as netflix started to devour uh smaller films that um creators complained like they're like yeah you can sell your film to netflix and make some money but it's going to get buried and no one's going to see it or not a lot of people are going to see it um uh, i think it's a real you know this one i think one of the advantages it is so sort of like poptimist and it does have that sheen to it mm-hmm. where it is going to attract people to go see it um but like yeah you're right like are people going to watch all three um my concern though is like they're going to watch them and it's going to be they're going to watch them like they watch Stranger Things. And like, look, I have nothing against Stranger Things. <laughs> it's a fun show. Don't get me wrong. Uh, there is very little subtext to that show. Yeah. Uh, it is essentially um, regurgitating Spielberg and 80 stuff. And that's fun. And I enjoy that. Uh, but that's like going to Panera uh, and just sort of eating something really quickly. You don't you never remember a Panera meal unless you get food sick. Right, <laughs> right. Not, right? Like, like I go to I go to Chipotle like three times a week, and <laughs> it's amazing, and I love it, and I have a really good, um, I have a really good uh, sense of their like joy is associated with their brand with me, but I never remember a single meal I eat there. Right, so I think like yeah. this is to yeah. me is like what is this? I don't know. In the food world, I could keep going with this analogy. This is like a Shake Shack, like an In and Out Burger. No. Um, <laughs> I'm very, I would be yeah I do I do not think unfortunately um the messaging of this film is really going to get through yeah. all that much except uh, to the to the horror nerds and the film geeks yeah um, but we don't you know yeah, we already we see the message you know we always <laughs> see our messages we see nothing else <laughs> um uh, th- there is the plan though so uh, to know you know when this film was conceived or the trilogy was conceived uh, churning here is basically like uh, you know, let's make a har- uh, a Marvel version of horror. Oh yeah, <laughs> but like the the problem with that though is we already have that, and we covered that this year. The Conjuring, the Conjuring, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, ah, come on, Conjuring's great. I love that. That, that was a fun movie. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, it's sort of I don't know where it's going to go. What I think what surprised me about this is looking at the critical stuff. I yeah. did not think this stuff would be. I thought it would like for Rotten Tomatoes would end up in like the the sixties probably, but it's got the first ninety four is an eighty three from all critics, uh, eighty nine for nineteen seventy eight, eighty nine percent, and then sixteen sixty six has ninety four percent rating Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, <laughs> like that's high. I mean, the actual ratings are sixty seven, sixty one, and sixty eight, so that's not like they're masterpieces or anything like that. Um, but they're not meant to be masterpieces. They're meant to be like digestible, fun cinema. Uh, and then what about the audiences? The audiences look interesting. Sixty five percent for nineteen ninety four. They're with you. Yeah, um, I think. And then, but then it shoots up. Seventy eight is eighty two percent, and sixty six is eighty four percent. Um, but I do really think that, like you, it's it, it's pieces of a whole. Um, I don't know. I wonder, like, if they had marketed this as, you know, they could have they they could have like recut the whole thing mm-hmm. to be. A digestible like 40 minutes at a time um pretty easily uh but well yeah if you did half hour yeah if you did like a 40 minute um so yeah you could have limited series like at least a bbc length limited right. series mayor of east town <laughs> 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 but the but also the letterbox scores um 
are a little more even keeled across the three films, 62, 68, and 72, which puts them, you know, not in um, the pantheon of a lot of like the anniversary movies that we do on this show, uh, but um, definitely not, uh, you know, in forgettable town. So I think that it, it there, it's really on the fence as to whether or not, you know, this, this trilogy is going to go down um, remembered. I think I, I will be really curious to see um, like the bloody disgustings top 10 of the year or the other horror oh, that's an interesting sites, point. Yeah. Right. Like, um, I, mm, will it be forgotten by the end of this, this year? I don't know. The, the problem is it's not elevated horror in the traditional sense. Right. It's right. not It Follows. It's not Hereditary. It's not Midsummer. It's not The Witch. So it doesn't really... And I got the vibe, I think, from people on like the horror subreddit, Dreadit, which is awesome. Do please check that out. It's a really <laughs> fun community. I got like the vibe that from people who were super into like Hereditary and Midsummer, like Ari Asher fans, wouldn't like this. Right. It's because it's not dark enough. It's not, it's meant for teens. It's not meant for me, the 35 year old, you know, loner. <laughs> um, so, you know, that I think that that plays against it getting on those lists because those lists are made by people like that for better, or for worse. They're yeah. made by film critics and people who are super into film and, you know, uh, pure cinema, if you will. Um, okay. I've been gushing out this movie. Let's, I want to say some negative things. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. Uh, Barry Hurts, The Globe and Mail, too safe, too slick, too far from Gonzo, which he was basically talking about hereditary and then those the elevated horror thing. Um, A.A. Dowd said of 1994, he said, awfully generic. Uh, this is about the killers. Awfully generic, like the attractions of a slasher parody or one of the more forgettable Halloween knockoffs. Um, those are all fair points. Right. But it's kind of besides the point. Yeah. Right. It's like, and I... Um, before we got on, I was doing just looking at reviews and stuff. And I think Robbie Cullum of I think The Observer is on BBC Five. He plays opposite Mark Commode sometimes. Um, he was really laying into 1994. Mm-hmm. It's a nine minute review where he's basically like these <laughs> it's like it's like these teens aren't believable. And I was like, well, number one, dude, it's a movie. Um, the, <laughs> the teens and Scream are believable, and it's basically a perfect film. Um, <laughs> So yeah, like I I get where people are coming from, especially uh, it, you know what it really comes down to is like what what lens are you going to walk into this movie with on, you know mm-hmm. what will, what lens are you going to have on if you're going to have on your film critic, you know Terrence Malick lenses, you're going to be like this is hack, this is hack, this is derivative, yeah. um, this is boring, this is you know um, pastiche, whatever postmodern term you want to use uh, for it being bad basically means bad. Uh, you know, you could do that, but like if you walk into this, and I think the release on Netflix really helps this. Mm-hmm. If you could walk into it with like, you know, expectations are just, hey, I just want to have a fun time, it it way exceeds those. Uh, and there's so much more going on there. Um, what are we? What's with, the, what's with some letterbox users? What are these? I love letterbox oh users. Yes. These are great. Um, I love, uh, I mean, the, bring, talking about bringing subtext to the text, uh, Aaliyah on Letterboxd, one of the higher rated reviews says, maybe the real horror was the exploitation of the working class and the villainization of marginalized peoples. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, she just said the quiet part loud. And yeah. uh, that's that's what makes it, I think, such a admirable feat. Because like in 94, you're not there yet. And so I totally yeah, get A.A. Yeah. A. Dowd's uh, knock on it. Um, but then with 66, it uh, it all comes together. Um, Steven said, loves the, love the callbacks and the closure we got. And this genuinely was such a fun conclusion to what's probably a favorite horror trilogy after Scream. Um, I mean, I haven't seen Scream 3 in a long time, but it's I, not good. It's, not I good. it's not good. Like Scream 2. OK, I'll give you that. Yeah, Maybe. Fun. But <laughs> and then Mar- uh, Mark Mark wrote, <laughs> "It's basically just a neon colored '90s mixtape with lots of gore and angry teenagers," and that's perfectly fine with me. Going back to what you're saying about like if you go in with low expectations or you go in with like trashy expectations, um, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, there's there's a lot to chew on, and it's all tastes good. Is essentially what it comes down to. Oh, one thing that I wanted to make sure to mention before we sure. round things out um, is that uh, I was really curious about the sound design uh, for the trilogy. Yeah. Uh, I was listening it and watching it on my 5.1 system, and unlike anything I've ever watched that was like straight to Netflix, yeah. Um, I I heard her like taking like using 
or in her sound design team, um, t- using full, um, you know, capability of uh, the 5.1 system. And I was like, what, why, why would she do th-? Like most people are watching this on their phone probably. Yeah, exactly. Um, but because they had cr- produced this anticipating a theatrical release For, in 2020. Like Dolby Atmos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, if there's anybody listening, even if I just get one person or Dan, if you, next time you watch these, I know you watch movies more times than I do. Yeah. Um, try, if you can listen to it with some rear speakers, with the subwoofer, like it's really impressive how much they um, take advantage of that. And I'd say the same thing with the cinematography, actually, even yeah. though I felt like the first one in the trilogy was, was, okay, was, you know, a little oppressive. Um, but yeah, especially reading like their comments about Malik and the New Worlds, like the '66 really looks re- really fun, and then '78 um, also looks really fun because it it's got like yeah. yeah, it's got that like kind of vintage tinge to it, um, like a drive-in movie or something. So uh, yeah, but not, but still not like in your face. Like I don't know, <clears throat> Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> with his lenses oh, him and his vintage. oh we have two vintage lenses this this season we have anyways yeah so here's the yeah it's a uh, i think it's a huge achievement um and it, it going into it I, I never thought that i would say that that's literally the last thing i thought when i saw the trailer pop up like oh this is going to be like a huge great achievement blah 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 no right. but it is it really is it's not um, a diversion it don't watch yeah. don't don't uh, be on your phone while you watch this movie yeah right? exactly there's movies. a lot going on uh okay cool so what's happening next week we got an old movie mm-hmm. we're getting closer mm-hmm. to the season finale here what do we got we're kind of up in the ante now i feel like exactly yeah episode eight uh is going to feature our friend molly who's been our seasonal co-host uh coming on once a season to discuss a movie from our youth and this time we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of richard kelly's adolescent batshit manifesto donnie darko <laughs> are we watching the director's cut or oh my god we gotta settle cut? that well i'll start a text we're, we're, i'm make not sure watching the director's cut ever again <laughs> okay fair i, I saw Decided. that in the theater yeah, I saw yeah. the director's cut wait, in the theater with richard like, kelly oh shit you got no, okay no, no, no wait 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 i gotta wait, like, yeah or was it southland tales no, no. So I saw the director's cut in the theater. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. Even <laughs> worse, though, was seeing Southland Tales in Richmond, Virginia, where Richard Kelly's from, uh, with him in the audience oh on a God. date. I was on a date, by the way. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Think about that. Think about that okay. experience. Yeah. So Donnie Darko will be a lot of fun. Ma is going to be uh, a great dissector of that uh, adolescent narrative that means a lot to us. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not sure how much it means anymore. In any event, thanks for listening. This has been Ultras. Mm-hmm.